What I'll do is I'll begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together to study your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come together and look at the great doctrines of the faith. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to think well upon your text this morning, that we would understand original sin and our own depravity so that we would know the greatness of your mercy and your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be doing a message for Bob. Bob has got a voice that's worse than mine. So we, uh, like I was telling him, we play the game, who's got the worst voice? And uh, the guy with the worst voice just uh, stays silent for now. But uh, we're both struggling, but getting better. And uh, I know Bob will be back with us more than likely next week. So today I wanted to do a topical message that will tie into the sermon. It's all about original sin. And original sin... When we do talk about that, we're not talking necessarily only about the sin that Adam committed in the garden, although that's certainly part of it, but technically we're looking at how that sin was credited to our account. We're going to be looking at both the corruption and the guilt that we accrued because of Adam's sin. So when we're talking about original sin, we're not just talking about Adam, but how Adam's sin was given to us, how it was imputed and transmitted to every single person. So that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. And I wanted to begin by looking at this question of how we became sinners. And we're going to look at these various views of how it is that God reckoned us as being sinners before him. Now, the various views that I have are views that you'll see all the way through church history. And I'll kind of define briefly these different views. Now, as I say that, let me give the caveat Every single category that I give of the different views on original sin, there's always going to be variations within these views, but I'll give you the general parameters so that you and I can weigh what others have said throughout church history and then examine the claims in light of Scripture. Again, Scripture is the final authority. So let's begin with the view that I think is least biblical. I'll put my cards on the table. It's the Pelagian view of original sin. And the Pelagian view would hold that Adam's sin did not affect others. And he would claim that there is no such thing as original sin and man is not depraved. In fact, Adam was just a bad example. That's what he would claim. Now, who is Pelagius? Well, Pelagius was a moralist who lived in the 4th century in Britain. And he had a debate with Augustine at the time. Most of you know that Augustine had a fairly robust sense of original sin. Well, one of the things that Pelagius had a problem with is Augustine had a saying. He said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou desire. And the implication behind that is that God commands us, but unless he grants it by his power, we can't do it. And because Pelagius was a moralist and believed that people could pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, he really reacted fiercely against Augustine's assertion. So Pelagius was someone who believed that when you are born into this world, you're not born a sinner. You're not born with neither guilt, nor are you born with corruption that affects your morality. You're basically born a blank slate who can either choose to obey God or not to obey God based on your power and your will. That's Pelagian. Okay, so this was condemned, rightly so, by some of the early councils of the church. Now, let's go on to the next one, Arminianism. I think many of you have heard of Jacob Arminius. He was a 16th into the 17th century theologian who was in a debate with the Calvinist reformers. And what Arminians believe, and again, I'm, there's many different forms, but I'll give you the one that's most often seen in Wesleyanism, is that mankind received corruption from Adam, but not Adam's guilt. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Why would they say that Adam's guilt isn't there? Well, they would claim that Adam's guilt was removed by something called prevenient grace. Prevenient means first. And this grace is universally given to every single person. So, yes, technically they're born with guilt, but that guilt is removed by provenient grace, every single person. So you're really not guilty because of Adam, because in Christ, this provenient grace is given to every single person. Well, they would say our nature is corrupted physically and intellectually, 
but not volitionally. We are enabled to believe by provenient grace. So provenient grace enables you not to be guilty, and it also enables you to believe the gospel. It reduces your moral corruption. So in this view, the depravity that we're given by Adam just leads to weakness. Think about this. Pelagius would say that the corruption that we receive from Adam's sin is nothing. We're completely spiritually alive. Arminianism says, no, you do have some corruption, but it's only that you're spiritually weakened. Does everyone see that? Okay, now we'll, we'll, I'll show you a chart, by the way, and we'll compare them, and we'll see all the various views. Now, the next one I want to talk about is semi-Pelagianism. Now, semi-Pelagianism was asserted by a man named John Cassian. He was a Bulgarian monk, and in all his monkery, he came up with semi-Pelagianism, which is a go-between. Semi-Pelagianism believes that mankind received corruption and guilt from Adam, but mankind is not spiritually dead. So in semi-Pelagianism, they would say, yes, we do have guilt from Adam. We also have some moral depravity, but it only weakens the sinner. It doesn't kill them. We're not spiritually dead. We're just spiritually weakened. So notice all three of these views that I'm putting up here. You're either spiritually alive, according to Pelagianism, or you're only spiritually weakened. All right, so Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, I should say, was also condemned. But I would say that that's the view of the Roman Catholic Church today. In fact, let me just cite a, a quote here from the fourth canon at Trent. In Catholicism, baptism, this is right from their, one of their sources online. It's their catechism. Baptism gives infused grace. Man's will can and must cooperate with and assent to God's grace. And only then would you be made inherently righteous. And once you're inherently righteous, then God can declare you as righteous. Now, let me give you a quote actually from Trent. Now, this is Trent, Canon 4. It says, quote, the human will does, I'm sorry, the human will does, quote, prepare and dispose itself, unquote. So notice in the semi-Pelagian view of Roman Catholicism, the human will is able to prepare itself to be saved and to dispose itself in order to be saved. So when you hear Catholic theologians say, well, no, 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 we're not semi-Pelagian. We, we condemn that in the Council of Orange. Don't buy into it. Yes, they don't call themselves semi-Pelagian, but they really are. Why? Because they believe that the human will can prepare itself and dispose itself in order to be saved. Meaning that from Adam, the human nature, <clears throat> again, excuse me, it was only weakened. It was not killed. It, it's not dead. All right? So that's the Roman Catholic view. Now, let's go on to some other views that are probably less known. Believe it or not, the realist position, this was the position of the earliest fathers of the church. And I use fathers loosely. I don't think all of them were true believers like Origen. Uh, in fact, Origen was a realist. Origen believed in the preexistent soul. So in the realist position, mankind is corrupt and guilty through Adam, but both are imputed because we were really there. So if you want to know what the realist position is, it's very simple. You were really there. Like Origen said, you had a pre-existent soul. And so you were actually in the garden sinning with Adam. Now, there's variations on this view like Tertullian. He believed in the body analogy. Uh, we have Augustine who believes somewhat the same. The idea would be if you have a finger who does something, so think of the finger as Adam, the rest of the body is guilty. So if you steal something and you try to tell the police officer, well, it was just my hand that did it, right? You're not going to get away with it. It's the entire you that's on the hook. And so that would be their analogy. So the idea is that in Adam, you were really there. But the view that I'm most concerned with is this view with the preexistent soul. That was origin, and we'll, we'll wrestle with that. Okay, now, oh, by the way, let me just say this about the realist view. Notice in the realist view, mankind is corrupt and guilty through Adam, but both... Both are imputed because we were really there. Realize in this view, you're totally corrupt and totally depraved. So you can do nothing apart from God's grace. And the grace isn't universal like provenient grace. Does that make sense? So in the realist view, you're spiritually dead. You're not spiritually alive like in Pelagianism or spiritually weakened like in Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism. 
you're spiritually dead. Okay, and the various views that I have after this, the next two are also those that hold to spiritual death. Let's look at seminalism. This is something that Augustine held to. That is that mankind was in the loins of Adam, and we have a sin nature through hereditary depravity. And this is called mediate imputation. Now, what does that mean? Well, in seminalism, the idea is that we receive our sin nature through hereditary means. Okay, so if I'm Adam and Tim was my son, immediate imputation means I give it to him, and then he gives it to Mike. Let's say Mike was his son and then Bob was his son. It goes that way. Okay, now hold on to that. That's mediated imputation. It goes from one person to another based on hereditary means. Well, that's contrasted then with the next view, which is federalism. Federalism, Adam was made the representative for all mankind by God. Adam's sin and corruption was imputed to all mankind. That's immediate imputation. Now, what's the difference? Well, remember, in mediated imputation, my sin went from me to my son, from him to his son, from his, you know, to his son, etc. But in immediate imputation, let's say I'm Adam, I sin in the garden, you're all guilty. It's immediately given to you all, both the guilt and the corruption. And this guilt and corruption leaves you spiritually dead, so that unless God's grace works upon you, you cannot be saved. All right, so the big difference between seminalism and federalism is the imputation. How does the sin go from Adam to humanity? Is it by God reckoning Adam's sin because he was our representative, or is it through hereditary means? That's really the debate. Now, any questions thus far? Yeah, Luann. We'll get you a mic here. I just wanted to go back to the realist position a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, it, because we were really there, um, that we can understand this, whatever happened. But the early fathers believing it. So my question would be then, is this where some, we're getting some of these socially saved uh, versions of the gospel come in? Like, I don't know if I'm thinking of like... Um, not new perspectives of Paul, but you know oh, how I some see. of them right. are, like, uh, you're saved as a social. Yeah, corporately. Yeah. Corporately, yeah. Versus I know what individual. You mean. I, I don't know if they get into that. I'll have to be honest with you. I don't know enough of their works um, to know if they believe that that's an issue. Normally, the big issue with corporate salvation is they look, for instance, in the genitives. Remember Bob was teaching in Galatians? Remember it talks about faith in Christ? They would translate that as the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. And so the passages that you and I often look at that say faith in Christ, where you and I are believing in Jesus, they say, no, it should be rendered faith of Christ, his faithfulness, okay? And so then they look at salvation, not just individually, but as something that is corporate. But I don't think it ties necessarily in to a realist view of original sin. I haven't seen that. Uh, perhaps that's true, but I, I don't know if that's the case. So I, I would doubt it, but again, I'm not sure. So good question. Anybody else? Barb? Oh, Lonnie. Um, yeah, these uh, six views, which yeah. is yours? Would it be realist or what? Well, we'll come to that. We'll leave you hanging. <laughs> Thanks for playing along. No, well, we'll come to it. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. We'll, we'll, we'll whittle them down and we'll see what I think the biblical view is. And in fact, that's what I want to do right now is I want to introduce what are we going to be looking at here this morning? Well, there's four issues surrounding original sin that are important for us. And I mentioned before, a lot of you came in here, the reason original sin is an important doctrine to get down is because unless you understand your depravity, you cannot understand the grace, the mercy, and the power of God. Okay, so this is a doctrine that we have to get down. In fact, in my opinion, if this is distorted, it'll have huge ramifications in all of your theology. It has throughout evangelicalism. Bob has written numerous times about how there was a man named Charles Finney who was really a Pelagianist. And most of our evangelical circles, Billy Graham, etc., have a Pelagian worldview where you have the ability to choose. Think about the magazine, Decision Today. You make a decision. Well, wait a minute. Do you really have the power to do that? That's what we're looking at this morning. So let me get into the four different issues that we're going to be looking at. The first one is we're going to be looking at guilt. We're going to ask the question, are we guilty because of what Adam did? And I think you'll find that the answer is obviously yes. But we have to wrestle with that. What about corruption? Now, now we're going from being declared guilty to are we affected? 
are we corrupt because of what Adam did? Are our bodies and minds affected by Adam's sin and our will? And I think you'll find again that the answer is yes. Now, what's the extent of this corruption? Again, that's one of the big divides. Are we just weakened? Are we still alive as the Pelagians would have? Or are we dead in our sins? So extent has to do with how severe is the corruption induced by Adam's sin. And the final category is how was this transmitted? It's the imputation. How was Adam's sin passed on to us? Those are the things that we're going to be looking at. Now, let me give you a chart that I put together. And I have three of these categories up here. Notice the one that I don't have is imputation or transmission. I couldn't fit it all on there. But let's begin with Pelagianism. Again, in Pelagianism, you have no guilt, right? You have no moral corruption. And to the extent of the corruption is that you're still alive. So you can choose to obey God or not obey God. You have the power to do so by your will. Okay, so it's easy being a Pelagian. You really think highly of yourself, right? You have the ability to do good or to do bad. Now, the next view is Arminianism. And notice the slight distinction. In Arminianism, there's no guilt. Now, why is there no guilt? They would affirm, at least Jacob Arminius would, that yes, we did in fact become guilty because of what Adam did, but they believe that prevenient grace, a first grace is given to every single person universally. Well, what I'm going to show you in the next couple of slides is if we can prove that grace is only given to some people and not all people universally, Arminianism is destroyed. In other words, if we can prove that the grace that God gives is particular rather than universal, Arminianism falls, and we can prove that. Okay? But notice here also in moral corruption, yes, they would say there is moral corruption, but again, it's not a moral corruption that's so bad that we're spiritually dead. They would just say that we're weakened. And so ultimately, you can choose by your will to have faith in God and then subsequently obey. So in Arminianism, prevenient grace allows corruption to be mitigated so that you actually, of your own volition, can choose to believe in Jesus Christ. All right. Now, there's one more view that I would say also has to this weakened extent, and that's the semi-Pelagian view. Now, notice in the semi-Pelagian view, yes, you're guilty, and yes, you're morally corrupt from Adam's sin, but you're only weakened. The moral corruption, and, and it's not necessarily because of a prevenient grace, it's just that it wasn't that bad. Okay? Adam's corruption, yes, it leaves you a sinner, you're guilty, but you can still, of your own power, choose the things of God. Now, this is a big dividing line. Notice the realist view. By the way, Tertullian would have held to this view. The realist view would say, no, you're guilty because of Adam's sin, you're morally corrupt, and you're spiritually dead. The only disagreement with other views is on transmission. How is it transmitted? The realist view says, well, you're actually there. Either corporately because you are likened to the body, a finger is responsible, or the rest of the body is responsible for the finger, maybe is the way to think of it. Or as Origen said, you had a pre-existent soul. Now, the pre-existent soul is the one that I'm going to eliminate because the other views really come under seminalism. Okay, so that's why I'm making a distinction between realism and seminalism. So realism, I just want you to think of the view of the pre-existent soul. Was Origen right? Did we have a pre-existent soul? And I'll show you, no, we didn't. But nonetheless, they would affirm that you're dead in your trespasses. Seminalism, this would be the view of Augustine. Yes, you're guilty. Yes, you're morally corrupt. And you're spiritually dead. You can't do anything that's pleasing to God. Now, the difference, of course, is the view on how was this transmitted. This would be genetically through hereditary means. The father passes his sons, or to his son, his sinfulness and depravity, as it were. Now, from there, we have federalism. And again, yes, you're guilty. Yes, you're morally corrupt. Yes, you're spiritually dead. You can do nothing pleasing to God. But it's passed on, this corruption and guilt, because we had a representative. Okay, so those are the views that we're going to be looking at now. Now, what I'm going to do is I want to eliminate the first two. And notice the first two, both Pelagianism and Arminianism, they both believe that you're not guilty because of what Adam did. So if we can prove from Scripture that, in fact, you are guilty because of Adam's sin, 
we can eliminate both of those positions. Does everybody follow me? So let's look at that then together. And what I'm going to show you is a passage I'll be referring to again in our sermon today. Yeah, Paul. Oh, hold on, we'll get you on tape here. Before you go on, that previous slide there. Yeah. Um, uh, the enemy sticking to his job, if you will. Um, is, has he pretty much repackaged uh, the Pelagianism army into different things that are prevalent today? I, like you've already mentioned Pelagianism and, and uh, Bill Graham. You already mentioned that. Yeah. But what about, uh, you know, can we keep our eyes open? Or maybe that's what this is all about, is getting us to open our eyes to the yeah. various uh, systems um, of thought. Wesleyanism, Methodism, uh, the Methodists, they would hold to an Arminian view. Uh, Roman Catholics would hold to a semi-Pelagian view. There's a lot of evangelicals that don't know any better about anything, and they would just by nature be Pelagian, where they just simply say, I don't think Adam had anything to do with what I'm doing. I wasn't there. And they haven't thought about it. They haven't looked at the passages, and they think they have the moral power to choose the things of God. And so, uh, again, Charles Finney, Bob has written about this, that Charles Finney, for all practical purposes, was a full Pelagian believed in the power of uh, man to do the things that are pleasing to God. So um, they are prevalent today. And sometimes you won't hear people even know when they explain their view that they're holding to a Pelagian, Arminian, semi-Pelagian. They won't know that. You're going to have to diagnose it. You see what I'm saying? Um, Catholicism, I read an online apologist for Catholicism. They deny that they're semi-Pelagian. When I looked at the Council of Trent, as I just cited to you from Canon 4, I don't know how they can get around it. To them, the Council of Trent is still binding. And notice it said, according to the human will, it must prepare and dispose itself. Well, if the human will can prepare and dispose itself, that's human ability. And therefore, you're only spiritually weakened. So I don't know how they get around being semi-Pelagian unless they reject the Council of Trent. So I hope that helps. There, yes, there are modern theologies that hold to all of these different views. The realist view, I don't know of anybody that holds to that today. Um, there perhaps are some. I may just be ignorant of that. So. Yeah, thank you. Good question. And I'll be showing this chart as we go, too. So, again, we're going to eliminate the first two by showing that, yes, indeed, Adam's sin, oh, I'm sorry, makes us guilty. Well, you were speaking of Billy Graham. I, it seems like he wouldn't be a Pelagian because he, he does believe in more guilt and moral corruption. So, you mean like a semi-Pelagian? Um, you know, we'd, I'd have to look, but here, here's the problem. is I, In Pelagianism, the idea is that you're really not responsible for Adam's sin. In semi-Pelagianism, you are, but you're still spiritually alive. So to me, the big issue, let me back up. To me, the big issue is the extent. It's not necessarily your guilt or moral corruption, although that's important. But practically, what's the extent of this moral corruption? And notice whether you're semi-Pelagian or fully Pelagian. Yeah, Pelagian says you're totally alive. Semi-Pelagian says you're weakened. But practically, it's the same because at the end of the day, you can still respond yourself by your will and make the decision for Christ. Do you see the issue? Now, what I'm claiming, and I'll show you later, is that if we're spiritually dead, then God has to first regenerate us in order to enable us to believe. Okay, and that's something that's missing. So, for example, if, if the salvation of a human soul is under human power, then we better dim the lights just right. We better say just the right things because if it's under human power, we have the power to affect it. And we also have people have the power to choose the things of God. And so salvation becomes a human affair. And this greatly affects all of evangelicalism. Okay, But if we in fact believe that it's only by the power of God, well then we're free to preach the gospel. Because God has to do the work. You see, I just preach the gospel. I don't have to trick anybody. I don't have to dim the lights just right. I preach the gospel, and it's only by God's power that anyone can come to faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, Bob. I don't know if I got enough voice. I'm going to try. <laughs> Practically, in America, yeah. having studied this under Dr. Travis, yeah. theology in America, in evangelicalism, worked itself down from Finney. Okay. And so we could talk about Pelagius and so on, but Finney is the man. He's the guy who started it. Sure. I don't even know if he ever read Pelagius. Sure. Or Augustine, I should say. Right. So <clears throat> Finney is the founder 
of popular evangelicalism in America. Sure. Good. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Bob. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and he was, you would say that he was full Pelagian, would you not? Yes, I claim that. In your article. So um, think about this. If, if And I, I believe that, Bob, what he's saying is right. Evangelicalism has as its father, Charles Finney. Charles Finney's full Pelagian. It believes in the human ability. It believes that humans are spiritually alive even after Adam. So what I'm going to be showing you is that is in fact not the case. And so that's what we're going to do now. If we can show that human beings are guilty, we can eliminate Pelagianism and Arminianism. Now one of the passages that does this is Romans 5, 18 through 19. And we're going to again look at verse 19 in our sermon today. But notice here what it says, Romans 5, 18 through 19. It says, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to, of life to all men. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, now who would that one man be? Let's stop there for just a moment. That would be Adam, right? Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Does everyone follow that? Now notice the underlines here. Notice it's through one transgression. Now whose transgression was that? Well, it was Adam's, wasn't it? Okay, and what was the result of that one transgression? Well, it resulted in condemnation to all men. That means we're guilty. Okay, I don't know how you can read it any other way. We're guilty. All right, now notice in verse 19 what's in the underline. Through one man's disobedience, we define that one man as whom? Is Adam. Adam's disobedience resulted in what? We're being guilty. The many were made sinners. Now, the term made, I'll talk about this in the sermon, it's kathistimi. And there is what's called, well, it's a, um, there's a judicial sense to this word. Let's just leave it at that. Meaning, kathistimi can mean to appoint. Now, if you appoint someone, you get this idea of a representation. The idea in the court of law if something is accredited to your account, like for instance, justification is what we call a forensic term. Forensis comes from open court in Latin. Well, this is also a forensic term. In open court, you are being declared something. Cathistomy, you're declared a sinner, not because you did anything, but because of Adam's sin. That's what it says through the one man's disobedience. The one man's disobedience was the means by which you are declared, cathistomy, a sinner. And so certainly you and I are guilty because of what Adam did. Now, because we've just said that, we've eliminated the Pelagian view, and we really have already eliminated the Arminian view. The only caveat with Arminianism is remember, technically, to be really persnickety, they believe that you're born guilty because of Adam, but then prevenient grace, again, a first grace, that's applied to every single person removes that guilt. So for all practical purposes, you basically had a guilt that was just gotten rid of immediately when you're born into this world, okay? So what we have to show then is that this prevenient grace isn't true, and that's what I want to wrestle with now. What about prevenient grace? Again, prevenient grace, for it to be true, it must be a universal grace that God gives to every single person that removes their guilt and their corruption, and what I'm going to show you is that, that that's not true. The Bible teaches that saving grace is a particular grace. In other words, it's not for universally for everyone. It's for the elect. Now, what passages would we look at to prove that? Well, one would be in John 10, 24 through 26. Notice Jesus says here, or it says of him, it says the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now Jesus speaks. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, the implication there is that his sheep do believe. In fact, he goes on to say that in John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice. Now, in Arminianism, prevenient grace makes everyone potential sheep. Everyone can hear the voice of Christ and respond. That's universal. 
But here, clearly, Jesus is saying the reason you don't believe is because you are not of a particular group. You are not of my sheep. And so clearly God's grace to believe is not given to all. Had it been given to them, the implication is they would have believed. Another passage I have listed there, remember in Matthew 13, 11, Bob writes about this in his book where he refutes, um, what was it called? Undefined, not undefining, redefining Christianity. Or he's refuting the seeker-sensitive movement. Rick Warren uses Matthew 13, 11 to try to prove that we all should speak in parables. Why? Because it makes it easier for people to understand. But what's interesting is when you read Matthew 13, 11, remember the question is, Lord, why do you speak to us plainly, but you tell them everything in parables? And if you look at Matthew 13, 11, Jesus says, because to you it has been given the knowledge about the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given or granted. The term is didomi. Literally, it's given. Okay, so now, Celeste. Oh, hold on. We got to get your microphone to you. There we go. I was just wondering, for these other views, what verses do they cite to support their positions? Yeah, they would cite, well, one example would be like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. They, t they would turn to the universal passages. Now, what's beautiful about our theology is we can affirm, yes, there is a universal call. Yes, the gospel really does go to every single person. We can say, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But knowing full well, it's only the elect that will actually respond. Okay, so um, that's the way we would answer it. So, to, yeah, Brian. Uh, universal, universalist salvationists would use the Romans 19 to support their view. Why is that? That the, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one would be made righteous. Universalist, universal salvation, people who believe that, they would use that verse. Okay. You follow what I'm saying? No. There's there's, there's, there's because people, of the many? Because of the, yeah. There's the term many that, rather than all? There's people that believe that everybody will be saved. There's... Um, well, let's, let's come back to that okay. later. I don't want to get bogged down because I'm going to, I might burn time trying to think about what you're saying and I might, I might be missing it. So, but thank you. Let's talk about it later. Don't, don't leave that thought go. Um, now, one other passage is two other passages I want you to think about is John 6.37 and John 6.44. Remember in John 6.44, Jesus says, no one can, and the term there is dunamis. It has to do with power. Literally, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, the term draw, el kuo, is a verb that's often used for drawing a sword out of a scabbard. So it won't do to say, well, el kuo, the verb for draw, just means to woo. You don't woo a sword out of your scabbard. You don't say, come on, sword, come out of there. No, you've got to drag it out. But the bigger point is that it's purely by God's power that anyone can be saved, that anyone can come to Christ, right? So Jesus says again, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. But if you back up to verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, I will receive and by no wise cast out, and I will lift them up on the last day. So what's interesting is if you put the logic together, all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. But it's only those who are given the ability to believe that will believe. Are you, are you with me? So if you put those together, you either are going to have universalism, or you're going to have grace only given to some. Well, we know universalism isn't true, Therefore, you have grace given to some and not others. Because all that are given to Christ by the Father are saved. But we know only some are saved, and we know it's only if you are given the power. Remember, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So if you put John 6, 37 and 44 together, the logic of it is you either have to have universalism, everyone's saved, or you have to get rid of this idea of prevenient grace. Is everyone with me on that? So what we've just proven then is that prevenient grace cannot be true because it's not universal. Okay, so what we've just done then is we've eliminated Pelagianism and Arminianism. Why? Because they say 
that you're not guilty for different reasons for what Adam did. And what we've shown is that that's simply not true. Those are invalid positions. They're not, they're, I shouldn't say they're invalid. They're not sound positions. They're not true. Okay? All right, now let's go on. We're going to move now down the line. Notice now we're going to look at semi-Pelagianism too because what I want to do is notice everything above this line. We're going to be looking at the extent. Let me put that up here. To what extent are we affected by Adam's sin? Everything above the line, you're either alive spiritually or you're just weakened. But everything below the line, you're spiritually dead. So if we can prove from Scripture that you're spiritually dead, we can eliminate all the three positions above that line. Does everyone see that? So again, the view, there's a three, I, the three different possibilities. One is you're spiritually alive. Just like the Pelagians would say, that because of Adam's sin, you can still respond to the things of God. You can still choose to believe or not believe. You can still choose to obey or not obey. You're spiritually alive. The Arminian and semi-Pelagian view is that you're weakened. Yes, you have some corruption because of Adam. You'll do some nasty things. But you can still choose and predispose your will to believe the gospel. Or the other alternative is that you're dead. You're dead spiritually. Now, what do dead people do? They stink it up. They rot. Here's the analogy. You know, oftentimes you'll hear this, this analogy where people are, they're dying, they're perishing, and they'll be likened to a shipwreck. And the analogy within evangelicalism is that people are drowning, they're flailing about, and God comes by, and if they choose to grab on to his lifeboat, they can be saved. But what the scriptures are really teaching is not that they're people who are drowning, they've drowned. They're dead, and they're floating upon the water. That's what the Bible actually teaches. And I'm going to show you that from the book of Ephesians. Let's ask the question, are we spiritually dead? I think the answer is yes, we are. Notice what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. What does it mean to be dead in your trespasses? Does it mean that you're physically dead? Well, no, otherwise they couldn't be reading this. <laughs> right? A message written to dead people who are physically dead doesn't do much good. So obviously he's not talking about them being physically dead. He's talking about them what? Being spiritually dead. And it's in the sphere of their trespasses. The sphere in which they live is transgression against God. They are dead within that sphere, spiritually. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now, walked, of course, has to do with the way you lived. The way you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, that is, children who deserve wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God. Here's a but God. This is the answer, the power of God. But God, being rich in mercy. Now, was it because of great things we had done? No, it was because of his great love with which he loved us. There's the cassette idea, the covenant love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts in, this is a parenthetical, by grace you have been saved, and then verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, notice this phrase here that we were dead in our transgressions, but he what? Made us alive together. Now, what did you and I do? Well, we didn't do anything. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions. Now, we're going to see the idea that we're dead in our trespasses because of Adam's sin later in the book of Romans as well. In Romans 6, 17, it talks about the fact that we are slaves to sin. Now, if you're a slave to sin, the idea that Paul has in Romans 6, 17 is that you can do nothing else. You can't help it. Why? Because you're in bondage. And then later, and Bob and I have talked a lot about this verse in radio, in Romans 8, 8, it says, those who are in the flesh, those who are in the flesh are still in Adam. They have not been regenerated by God's power. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, according to Hebrews eleven six. What is the only way in which you can please God? Well, by coming to faith. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the idea, if we put it together in Romans 8, 8, if you can do nothing pleasing to God if you're in the flesh, you can't even come to faith. That's the depravity of mankind. That's the extent of it. Why? Because we're spiritually dead. It's not that we're flailing around in the ocean. We're dead. And unless God comes along and picks us up, puts us in the boat, does CPR on us, we're going to remain that way. And so I think what we can clearly say then is that all of these first three views can be wiped out because not only are they wrong, a couple of them, on the idea of accrued guilt, but they're really wrong about the extent of the depravity that we're either alive or just spiritually dead. Right now, let's move on to transmission. What we're going to do then is we're going to eliminate which one of these is, or I should say we're going to eliminate two of these by looking at how these are transmitted. Because the divide in the last three, realist, seminal, and federal, is over how was this sin of Adam transmitted to us. So here's the three possibilities. The realist position is that we were really there. Why? Well, because of the preexistence of the soul. Now, I want to get rid of this idea of the preexistence of the soul, so I want you to turn to some passages with me. Turn your Bibles, first of all, to Ecclesiastes 12.7. I want to show you that Origen, when he claimed that we have a preexistent soul, he is not correct. We believe here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, in the creationist view of the soul, that God creates a soul for a person, and that this isn't something that preexisted. There was also something called a traducianist view. The traducianist view was the view that you were given not only your body genetically from your parents, but also your soul, okay? But we would hold to the creationist view. And I wanted you to see this idea from Scripture that eliminates any possibility of a preexistent soul. So let's start in Ecclesiastes 12.7. And again, I don't think that this itself is final, this verse, but you'll see a couple others that I think are. Ecclesiastes 12.7, Solomon wrote, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay, now the spirit there, remember, we've laid this out before, human beings are constituted with both a body and a soul or a spirit. I believe soul and spirit are used interchangeably. So there's a material portion and an immaterial portion. And in the immaterial portion of a person, soul and spirit can be used interchangeably. We've talked about that at other times. Now here, what Solomon is declaring is that the spirit, the immaterial portion, was given by God. Now, to be fair, that doesn't seem to say when he gave it, but it indicates certainly that he gave it, he created it. Now turn your Bibles ahead to Zechariah 12.1. I think this is a little bit more definitive. Again, Zechariah 12.1. There's an important implication in this verse. Zechariah 12.1. Notice it says, The burden of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, so it talks about him creating, and forms the spirit of man within, them, within him. Does everyone see that? So notice there in Zechariah 12.1, it's saying that God is the one who formed the spirit. Now the term in Hebrew, yotzer, means to create. So you could literally render it that he created the spirit of man within him. Now if he creates the spirit of man within him, I think that that seems to mitigate this idea that the soul always existed or had a pre-existent state. Why? Because it was created within him. Okay. Now, there's other passages we could turn to, but I think that that suffices. Numbers 16.22, uh, Hebrews 12.9, Isaiah 42.5 are others that we could look to. But I think clearly we don't have a pre-existent soul. And so in that sense, then, the realist position can't be right because you didn't exist in a pre-existent soul to be there with Adam in the garden. So what I would say is that the realist position doesn't have anything going for it when it comes to transmission. Okay. Now, here's another view. That's the seminal view. We'll look at that. Again, seminal view believes that we have this sin nature, this corruption, this guilt, all through hereditary means. And then finally, we have the federal position, which is we have Adam as our representative. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at the seminal position. The seminal position was held to 
by a man named Augustine. He's the leading proponent of it. And one of the problems with Augustine was that he relied upon the Latin version of the Bible. And in the book of Romans, the Latin version of the Bible can steer you astray somewhat, in my opinion, in Romans 5.12. Now, in Romans 5.12, let me read to you the Latin version here. That's what I have on the screen. This is what Augustine had. And listen to what it says. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered this world by one man, and through sin death, so death passed into all men, in whom all sinned. Now, notice what's highlighted in red. There's a preposition and a relative pronoun, in whom. And that's the way he translated, or he had a version that said that. And so he looked at that and said, well, look, we were in Adam, in his loins, and we were regarding as being sinners because genetically we were in him. This seminal idea. So then sin would be transmitted from Adam to his son and from his son to the next son, etc. But what's interesting is look at the newer versions like the NASB. Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So this takes the preposition epi and the relative pronoun and translates it because. Now, who's right? Well, here's the phrase in Greek. What we're debating about is what's in red here. This is epi. It's contr- there's contraction because there's another vowel here. It's F-O. There's the preposition and the relative pronoun. Now, what I want to show you is that most often, Paul does, in fact, use that to render the Greek text because. I'll give you an example right away here. 2 Corinthians 5.4. For indeed, Paul says, while we are in this tent, that is our present body, we groan, being burdened. Now, notice because. That's F-O. That's the preposition and the relative pronoun. Because... We do not want to be clothed, but to be, I'm sorry, to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, would it make any sense to take F-O here? Would it make sense to say, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened, in whom we do not want to be unclothed? Well, it doesn't make any sense. It's because, it's causal. Okay, does everyone see that? Turn your Bibles to Philippians 3.12. I want you to see another example. Philippians 3.12. Philippians 3.12. I have the ESV version here. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, Because, there's F-O, Christ Jesus has made me his own. So again, you can see that because, and I know some translations are a little bit worded differently, but because is a better translation certainly than in whom. And you'll see that all the way through the New Testament. So here's the point. When it comes to Romans 5.12, it should be better rendered as the New American Standard Bible has it. So let's read the last clause. Notice in Romans 5.12, the NASB, It says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yes, there's a causal relationship, but it doesn't specify what it is. It doesn't literally say in whom. And so that's one of the problems, I think, with the seminal view is it doesn't necessarily follow from Scripture. And there are better alternative explanations. Now, there's another reason why he held to the seminal view And, yeah, I think we have time. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 7. I want you to see why Augustine held to this idea. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And for the sake of time, I'll have you skip down to verse 7. So we'll start in Hebrews 7, 7. Now remember here, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's showing that Jesus is not a priest in the line of the Levites, but one that comes from what? Melchizedek. Melchizedek was eternal. Melchizedek was a king, the king of righteousness. Remember, he was the king of Jerusalem. And so he's showing that Jesus has a superior priesthood. Now notice the argument he makes. This is Hebrews 7, 7. He says, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, 
what, who is the lesser? Well, the lesser would have been Abraham, right? Blessed by the greater would have been Melchizedek, all right? This king of righteousness. And he says in verse 8, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. Now notice the phrase, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now notice verse 10, for, and here's the reason, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now let's stop there. What Augustine did is he said, look, certainly you have this idea that Levi was in the loins of Abraham, and so certainly God then looks at things in a seminal way. You have someone in the loins of Abraham, namely Levi, and therefore this depravity must be passed on genetically. The idea that you have a son within the father, and there's kind of an element of corporate solidarity as well there. Now, we believe in corporate solidarity, by the way, but we don't believe that sin is passed on through hereditary. Now, here's one of the reasons why I wouldn't take the view that Augustine does. Notice in verse 9, notice the phrase, it's kaihos epos, literally, and in this way of speaking. Notice it says in verse 9, and so to speak. So right away, the writer of Hebrews is cluing you in that he's not talking literally, he's talking about a figure of speech. He's using an analogy. And so if we take this analogy and we press it to be literal, that yes, in fact, Levi was in the loins of Abraham, we're pressing it too literally. Yes, there's a corporate solidarity, but it doesn't mean that he was actually present seminally there. The same thing can be said, there's another passage that Augustine would cite, and that's Genesis 25, 23. Notice Genesis 25, 23, it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, that's about Jacob and Esau. Now, notice it says that there are two nations in your womb. Well, is it really true that there were two nations in her womb? Well, it's a figure of speech. There were two boys in her womb. That's literal. And it is true that two nations come from those two boys, but literally speaking... Metaphysically speaking, there were two sons, Jacob and Esau. From Jacob come the Israelites, from Esau come the Edomites. So we use that type of language all the time. We'll talk about someone who is the father of America, George Washington. Does that mean that George Washington was literally the father of every single person in America? No. All right, so I think the point being is I don't think it proves these passages that genetically sin was passed on from one parent to another. We know that from Hebrews 7, 9, there was a figurative way of speaking. And I think it's easy to see in Genesis 25, 23, that yes, there are two men that are in the wombs that become great nations, but there are literally not two nations there. So I think that that's understandable. Now, here's what I want to lay out for you. I want to show you that if we were in fact seminally present with Adam, then is it true that we were seminally present with Christ? Let's ask ourselves that question. Were we with Christ on the cross? Romans 5, 5 through 18. Notice it says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, notice here, everything in red is what Adam did. Just read through it. By the transgression of the one, judgment arose from one transgression. By the transgression of the one, through the one, through one transgression. But now read what Christ does. 
That's in blue. By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, through the one Jesus Christ, through one act of righteousness. If we were seminally in Adam, well, then we have to be seminally in Christ. Does anyone want to make that argument that we were with him in his act of righteousness? I wouldn't. What I am much more comfortable in saying is that Christ vicariously does for me what I cannot do for myself. So when we look at this example in Romans 5, 5, 15 through 18, you can clearly see that you have two representatives. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense to say, well, we were seminally in Adam, but we weren't seminally in Christ. Why? Because they're being juxtaposed. The transgression of the one, the grace of the one. The disobedience of the one, the righteousness of the one. So certainly what makes better sense is that Adam and Christ are depicted as representatives. Now, we use this idea of vicarious representation all the time. Why is it that I cheer like a lunatic when the Vikings score a touchdown rather than the evil Green Bay Packers? Okay, sorry. Do I know anybody on the Vikings better than I know people on the Green Bay Packers? No. But because it says Minnesota, and I'm from Minnesota, when Teddy Bridgewater or Adrian Peterson scores a touchdown, they're representing me. You have thousands of fans that cheer like me. They'll dress themselves up like, you know, in purple. And what they are doing is they are living vicariously through another football team. That football team is their representative. And yet, when you say Jesus Christ was your representative on the cross, they say, why in the world would you believe that? How can Jesus be my representative? And meanwhile, their whole life is lived vicariously through football and baseball and basketball, et cetera, et cetera. I was talking to Christy Weeham this week on the phone, and she said, you know, there's many parents who live vicariously through their sons and daughters. If your daughter, uh, you know, does something well in dance, the mother says, you know, she learned that from me, right? But she's living vicariously. I always laughed about um, Bill Cosby. Remember Bill Cosby? He teaches his boy football, and his boy is going in and out of traffic. He gets a, a punt, and he goes in and out of traffic just like his dad taught him. Stiffs arms a guy, outruns everyone else, shows breakaway speed, gets into the end zone, slams the football down, and then looks at the camera and says, Hi, Mom. <laughs> the whole point is he was living vicariously through his son. And so we know what it is to have a representative. We see it all the time in our day and age. And that's what's being depicted, I think, clearly in this passage. Yes, Adam was our first representative, and he failed. But we had a new representative that brought us mercy and grace. Think about 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made him, as Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, who pair, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was our representative, wasn't he? All right, now... What we can do then is because we've looked at the transmission, we've also eliminated the realist and seminal position. And what we're left with is this federal position. Succinctly stated, we're guilty because of what Adam did. We are completely corrupt because of what Adam did. We are dead in our transgressions. And we need a new, sub, we need a substitute. We need a new representative, don't we? That's what we need because you and I are declared sinners and we can do nothing pleasing in God's sight. And that's why it says in Romans 5, 19, very clearly, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were what? Cathistomy. They were declared sinners, forensically. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made cathistomy, declared what? Righteous. Two representatives. And so the only question is, who is your representative? If it's Adam that means you've never come to Christ. You're still guilty. You still have a corrupt nature. You're still sinning according to that corrupt nature, and you're spiritually dead. But for those that God has regenerated, they come to faith in the Son, and they have a new representative. And now they're spiritually enabled to do that which is pleasing to God, not by their power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I think federalism clearly is the best way to look at original sin. That there's two representatives, and praise be to God, it's Jesus Christ who is our new one, 
and he's brought us righteousness. Now, with that, I know we can just take a few minutes. How about some questions? Norm. Well, I just had a real quick one. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Because, yeah. you know, going back to the seminal view, and, you know, if I were trying to explain that to somebody, you know, they're yeah. going to glaze over with the whole grammar stuff, you know? Yeah. But so back in the Old Testament where... It, uh, the sin was passed from one generation to another. The Israelites were told that, but then later on, you know, no longer will the sins be held accountable. Sure. I mean, that still fits to disregard that seminal view. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, here's what I would say is I, th I think the Bible clearly teaches a corporate solidarity between the one and the many, but that to me is more in line with a representative rather than a seminal view. Do you see what I'm saying? So for example, Rahab, think about Rahab. She's not genetically connected in any way to the Israelites, and yet she's in the genealogy of Christ. But my point being is she's not a, a Jew, she's a Gentile. So what matters more is not necessarily blood, but what? But the fact that you believe, right? And those who believe are in corporate solidarity with Abraham and with the Messiah. So going back to Genesis 3.15, in Genesis 3.15, when it says that the man would crush the serpent's head, it says he will crush the serpent's head. Literally, in the, in the Hebrew, it's who. Um, I always tell people that in, in Hebrew, who is he? And believe it or not, the pronoun he is she. And so it sounds like a, you know, who was on first episode with uh, Abba and Costello. You're all confused. But it literally says he will crush the serpent's head. So there's one man. And that term is seed. Well, then you have sometimes promises that are obviously given not just to the one, but to the many. But the same term is used, zeraz, seed. So the one is going to provide salvation for the many, but the many are incorporated into the promises, not because they're genetically related or seminally related, but because he's their representative. Remember that term I talked about some uh, months ago, archegos? In Hebrews, it talks about the author and perfecter of our faith. The term author comes from archegos. It's very hard to translate. What it literally means is a pathbreaker, like a Lewis and Clark, someone who breaks new paths. Why did we need that? Because all of us, because of our first representative, were dead in our sins. But our new representative is this groundbreaker. He's like a Lewis and Clark. He brings us into the newness of obedience by his power by his spirit and he saves us he lives the perfect life that we can he goes to the cross but it's by representation it's not seminally does that make sense so to me that's where seminalism breaks down because seminalism you might see it perhaps in adam but how can you see it in christ how are we genetically related in any way because yes he's unique he's the monogenes the unique son of god but he is our representative he's the groundbreaker and so to me corporate solidarity is something that's biblical but it's not because of seminalism, it's because of representation. So I hope that helps. Okay? All right, now, anybody else? Yeah, yeah Norm. Um, what I'm struggling with, if we completely rule out the seminal view, yeah. then when we look at the virgin birth of Christ, yeah. and we say that Joseph cannot be his biological father because sin would be passed on to him yeah. that way. How do, I, I can't connect the dots here on that. Yeah, and the other problem is then we have to ask the question, is sin just passed through the Y chromosome? You know, what about the X chromosome? You know, I mean, so I, I think, again, the issue is I, I, I think what we have to say is Jesus is born sinless. He's obviously born through a, the virgin birth. But I can't tell you metaphysically how that escapes original sin. I think that is actually a weakness of seminalism because someone could say, well, are you saying that sin isn't passed through the X chromosome, through the female chromosome? So to me, um, the issue is that you have this perfect one who was born. Um, certainly he's our new representative. He's sinless. He's born in a sinless state, remains in a sinless state, and therefore he can be a representative that Adam never was. So does that make sense? I think that the rebuttal to seminalism is more difficult than the other way around. But again, you're right. These are things that were not clearly taught. There's no passage that specifically says how God got around that. And so I just have to affirm that it's a mystery and I'm not sure. So yeah, I hope that helps. Yeah. But good thinking on that, Norm. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, Paul. 
Yeah, we spoke of the Pelagianists, Armigianists, uh, semi-Pelagianists, realists, similar, and how they've been repackaged into this day and age with yeah. sh shiny new uh, floor, you know, and stuff like that. Would you consider them to be false teachers? Yeah, that's false teaching, and it's very dire false teaching because if you have human ability, well, then you do you really need the grace of God to be saved? Um, no, it's a it's an attack on the grace and the mercy and the power of God. As so would I, certainly. Yep. Okay, they all have congregations. They have people following them, yeah. and they have people who are taken in by them, yeah. uh, whether it's their personalities or whatever like that. Sure. Uh, I guess we can only pray for them, huh? Yeah, amen. And again, there's, uh, there are people, I'm not claiming that if you're an Arminian, you can't be saved, but I am saying it's, it's, it's false teaching. It is wrong in its error, and it has drastic ramifications as to the rest of our theology. Yeah. That's how I would say it. So, well, with that, thank you for all. Um, Olani, you had a um, you had a question earlier on. Did we address that? Uh, yeah. Oh, was federalism that you wanted to know? What? Yep. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, one more question. Okay. Well, yeah, we better do that. I suppose to shut down, but feel free. Well, God bless you all. Let me bow our heads in prayer, and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to, in freedom, look at these things and to look through your word and to search out the truth. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would realize that we're all born sinners, that we are depraved, that we can do nothing of our own power that's pleasing in your sight. I pray that this would richly show everyone your power, your grace, and your mercy, all for the sake of your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.